Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand with me this morning. Good to see you. Turn to your neighbor and say, you know, you look really good today. Well, if you have been here for the last week or so, we've been on a series called Perspectives. How many of you know you can see things wrong or you can see things right? And sometimes we get things wrong. We have perceptions and we have views and attitudes and sometimes they're self-imposed and they're not reality. I want to read just two verses with you today. This is Isaiah chapter 11. Let me give you a little preview. The beginning of this chapter gives the qualities of the spirit of the Messiah that's coming. And uh, verse 3, And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Could we read that together? Let's try it. Here we go. Look at the screens. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here together, to hear your word, to fellowship together, and to fill your presence. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're here today. This is a messianic prophecy about Jesus that was given about 700 years prior to his birth in Bethlehem. Now, this verse says that the Messiah will not judge by what's seen with the natural eyes. How many of you know there's more than meets the eye sometimes? There's more to it than just what you see. He, he will not judge just by hearsay. When the Messiah comes, he's going to judge with an equitable, righteous judgment. And sometimes you and I are very poor judges because we don't see the whole picture. How many of you know that's true? Uh, someone sent this to me. Uh, a guy said, my wife texted me a selfie in a new dress and asked, does this make my butt look big? I text back, no. My phone auto-corrected my response to move. Please send help. How many of you know there's more than meets the eye to that text? Well, there is more than meets the eye. Sometimes your perception shapes your reality and your reality shapes your life. Uh, last week, if you were here, we discussed three areas of perception that sometimes we have problems with. Number one is a blindness to the unseen world around us. How many of you know there is an unseen world around us? There's a spiritual world. Um, there, there is uh, things that affect us that are invisible to our sight. How many of you know gravity is invisible? But you just hang on long enough, it's going to sag you down, darling. I deserve a better amen than that. You can't see it, but you feel the effects of it. You, you, you know the effects of it. Many things like that in our world. Number two, a blindness to the needs, the nature, the condition of the people around us. And thirdly, a blindness to ourselves. So I, I really want to discuss that number two today, if, if you will allow me. Can we have a wrong perception about the people around us? true. Can people have a wrong perception about us? Well, that's true too. What we think is true and what's actually true may be two different things. It's not always the same thing. Our perception about somebody else may not be right. We can have a false reality. Not all Democrats are bad. Not all Republicans are good. Not all Republicans are, are bad. Not all Democrats are good. How I many you know we can send bombs to people? 
We, we can go into synagogues and we can shoot people because what do we have? We have a false perception of reality that creates chaos and evilness and we don't want to have that. And if it defines our behavior, then it defines the people around us and the actions that we have toward them and life itself. We can presume, presume something's right, but it doesn't make it right. And sometimes we're just absolutely wrong. A classic example of this is the life of Job. Everybody say Job. Now, if you don't know about Job, the Bible gives an entire book on one person. It's a book of antiquity. We think he lived maybe around Abraham or even predated Abraham. And Job was a very good man. Matter of fact, the Bible says, here's a man, blameless, upright, he fears God, and he shuns evil. I mean, you know, that's a pretty good uh, tag to put on somebody. Now, if you have a King James Bible, it says he was a perfect and upright man, and that word perfect there means mature and achieving. How many of you know nobody's perfect but God? But yet we're, we're striving for, for uh, perfection, and, and here we are with Job, who's a good man. But one day, Satan comes in before God, and God says, what, what about that guy Job down there? You know what Satan said? The only reason he's serving you is for the benefits he's getting out of it. You take away the benefits that Job has, he will not serve you. Matter of fact, he may even curse you. And God said, I don't think so. And then he said, you can touch Job's life, just don't kill him. And guess what? All hell broke loose on Job's life. He, uh, he was a rich man. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us he had over uh, 11,000 different uh, uh, livestock animals, almost 12,000. You know what? If you put Job's assets in today's economy, he would be a multi-multi-millionaire. He had an estate. He had land. He, he had camels. He had cows. He had sheep. He had donkeys. I don't know why, but he had some. Um, <laughs> But anyway, he had a large number of employees and servants, and the Bible tags him, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So here he is, he, he loves God, he, he puts away evil, the Bible says he's one of the greatest men of all the East, but then, all of a sudden, his livelihood is gone. All of his livestock is dead, his ten children die, he loses his health. The only thing he has is his life and his wife. So you figure that out, why Satan left his wife there. That's another story. Think about it. Amen. Amen. Just kidding. God said you can do anything to him but take his life. And his health is horrible. Matter of fact, he scrapes himself. I mean, he has sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He, he's in a horrible, horrible condition. He's grieving over the life of his family. His livelihood is gone. And so it is a horrible thing. Everything is destroyed. He's left with a wife and failing health. He thinks he's going to die. Matter of fact, this is what he says in the book. He says, I wish I'd never been born. He said, the day I died, I wish they had told my mother the baby's dead. Let me tell you, that's horrible. That is a horrible perspective on life, but that's exactly where Job is. Now, Job has three friends who live somewhere off in the distance. They come together. They said, we've heard about Job. We're going to get together, and we're going to go visit our friend. Now, emphasis on friend. We're going to go visit our friend. So they travel to Job. They see him in this cataclysmic condition, horrible, family gone, economy gone, everything gone. There he is. He's at the point of death. And when his friends see him, they begin to weep. They don't even recognize him. He's the shell of the person they used to know. 
And they sit down with him and no one speaks for seven days. They don't even talk to him. They're grieving. They're mourning. But when they talk, goodness, for, <laughs> friends, listen. When they talk, it wasn't good. Can I give you just some of the words that was spoken? Eliphaz is the first friend, and I'm not going to read the verses, but here's a compilation of what was said to Job. Can you remember anyone perishing being innocent? If you plow iniquity and sow trouble, you reap the same. The blast of God and the breath of God consumes people, Job. Your wickedness is great and your sin is without end. You have stripped the naked of their clothes. You have not given the weary water to drink. You have withheld bread from the hungry. You have sent widows away empty. Have a good day. That's horrible. Absolutely horrible. And this is his friend saying, Joe, this is what you've done. Then Bildad begins to speak. When your children sinned against God, he cast them away for their transgressions. If you, Job, were pure and upright, God would answer you. You'd hear from God if you were the person you need to be. Then so far, he comes along. These are his words. Know that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You know what he's saying? You deserve more, Job. Just be grateful that God hadn't given you more, more than what you've already got. Folks, that's horrible. These guys are coming together to comfort him. How many of you know none of that's comfort? They're perceiving Job and his situation in a totally wrong perspective. So everybody shares their perspective. They share their words of what they think happened to Job and why it happened to Job. Then God speaks. So here's the Lord speaking to Eliphaz. And he says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you've not spoken what is right. You know what God is saying? You have a totally wrong perspective of Job. Everything that's happened to him is not anything that you said. How many of you know people can perceive you wrong? And you can perceive other people wrong. And what you think is right is not right at all. They think this has happened to Job because Job has done some horrible sin, some horrible iniquity. His kids are sinners. How many of you know Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy? That's what he does. And you may think, well, this person, may I tell you they've done something wrong. This person over here, they're messed up. How many of you know it may not be the story at all? About uh, two weeks ago, we had an event here at the church. We had almost 300 people on campus. And uh, that evening, the uh, gift shop was open. Brenda opened the, the gift shop back there. And uh, we had people coming in and out. And we actually, uh, they had given free gifts to the people here. And she shared with me that uh, there were a couple of women who passed by the gift shop. And this was their conversation. So I want you to listen. Well, they opened this gift shop up because they just want to get our money. I've got some thoughts about that, but I can't share it with you. <laughs> well, they just opened this gift shop up because they want to get our money. Here's what they don't know. Everyone who volunteers in that gift shop gets nothing for it. They, they volunteer because they're, they're serving God. They, they don't get a salary. They, they don't get any of the profit or proceeds. Matter of fact, nobody gets the profits or proceeds from the gift shop. You know where it all goes? It goes to missions and ministry. If you buy anything in there, guess what it does? All of that goes right back into the kingdom of God. Nobody makes a dime off that. Matter of fact, there's work involved in that. There, there's stocking, there's ordering, there, there's people who's waiting on you and serving you. And, and can, can I tell you what? 
all the money that goes to Kmart does not go to missions. Is that shocking you? All the money that goes to Walmart does not go overseas to missionaries. All, 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 the, uh, all the money that you, uh, you pay to Amazon does not go to Africa to help feed the poor. I'm not saying some of it does, but, but I'm going to tell you, those two women who walked by had a totally wrong perception. And yet you hear these things and people believe that would be truth, but how many of you know they're like Job's friends, they are way off base. And so we sometimes are guilty of the same thing. We have perceptions, we look at things, we say things, and sometimes it is never, ever the truth of what is going on here. So we have a false impression in an area that we can all be guilty in. Our perspectives, either good or bad, can be associated just where we stand or what we think is going on or where we think we stand. If you put the number six on the floor, if you're on one side it looks like a six, you get on the other side it looks like a nine. And we can argue this is a six or a nine, just depends on where you're standing, right? And sometimes it could be racial issues or it could be religious issues or political issues and everybody has a different stand. And sometimes we don't have the right perception. Sometimes we do and we don't like their perception and sometimes other people's perception is just wrong. But yet we have to be careful that we're not guilty of being a part of wrong perceptions. Can I hear an amen? And your perspective can change and your perspective will change as you age. You'll see things differently. And I see things differently the older I am than when I was younger. Um, your perception as a parent changes and as a child changes. Our parents, they nurtured us and protected us, provided for us, wiped our rear ends. It's all right, they did. I mean, you didn't get here without that happening to you. And then all of a sudden, as your parents get older, things change. Now you're nurturing them. Now you're having to kind of direct them and help them. And you're having to say, okay, Dad, you know, maybe you shouldn't drive at night. Or, Mom, maybe you shouldn't drive at all. Uh, and you're having to have a different focus or perception on how you're dealing with your parents because they did this to you when you were growing up and now the roles have reversed a little bit and now you have a different perception. Now the reason I brought that up is because everybody's going to go through that. It makes a difference who you are. The other day, most of you know that Carrie and I went out to the Grand Canyon, Hoover Dam, and we went to Las Vegas. And we flew into Las Vegas about 10 o'clock that Saturday morning and I don't know if you realize, but that Saturday night, there was this huge fight in Las Vegas. Conor McGregor and the Russian Khabib was fighting in Las Vegas. And in the big uh, arena there, holds thousands and thousands of people. The cheapest ticket was, four, was 500 and something dollars. Cheapest ticket was 500 and something dollars. So all the Irish have come in to support Conor McGregor. All the Russians have come in to support their guy. And that place was packed... I mean, it's always packed, but it was packed with Russians and Irishmen. And let me tell you, there was bad, bad blood that week. They've already had bad blood the weeks before and the months before. I mean, they're swinging each other in the weigh-in. They're throwing stuff at each other. Before this ever happened, when they had met before, there were people fighting in the streets. They were fighting in the arena. Women were fighting in the seats of the, the arena. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. 
So we're there Saturday, fight's going to start. So Carrie gets a call from Aaron, our son. And he says, Mom, you and Dad do know there's a big fight tonight in Vegas, and there's a lot of bad blood there. Y'all need to be in your hotel rooms by 930. <laughs> it's a true story. I'm telling you, it's going to be bad. They're going to be fighting in the arena. They're going to be fighting in the ring. They're going to be fighting outside the ring. They're going to be fighting in the seats. They're going to be fighting in the streets. And all that was true. Not that he's prophesying it, but all that was true. He says, so you and mom, dad, y'all need to be in the hotel by 930 and do not get out on the streets. A little bit later on, Carrie gets a text from Matthew. Hey, you guys do know there's a fight in Vegas tonight. Y'all need to be in your room by 9.30. We used to give their curfew. Now they're giving us our curfew. Perspectives. Things change. So I told Carrie, I said, you need to text them back or call them back and say your dad. Now, Michael McCord's a very Irish name, Michael McCord. So I said... Text them back, call them back, and tell them your dad has a t-shirt with a big shamrock on walking down the streets looking for a Russian to fight. <laughs> Not. But things change. Perspectives change. And if we don't realize that, then we're going to really not understand. And see... We can have a perspective on our family. We can have a perspective on our spiritual family. And we need to have the right perspective. I didn't say this in the early service, but something just kind of popped in my mind earlier. I remember someone telling me in a missions conference that there were some missionaries that they were honoring. And there was an older couple there that had been in Japan like 50 years and they were older, and they weren't quite as conversational, or they weren't quite the speakers they used to be. And they had this older couple get up and speak over their mission involvement 50 years in Japan. And they were a little halted. They didn't communicate really good because, goodness gracious, you know, they're way up in years. And as they honored them, there was a couple of young people behind them as this couple spoke. And this is what they said. Well, that wasn't so great, was it? And someone in front of them turned around. Have you ever had somebody look at you and it's like lasers going through you? And they said, how dare you make that comment until you've been on the mission field for 50 years. You don't even know what it's like. How many of you know wrong perspective? You don't know what people's gone through. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know their investment. You don't know their life. You don't know all the rocky roads and the mountains and the hurts and the ups and the downs. How many of you know until you walk in their shoes, do not have the wrong perspective? Because if you do, it's damaging to you. It's not honoring to someone else. And sometimes that cannot just happen in a church. It can happen right there in your own home. Do you have the wrong perspective? Uh, let me give you a case in point. David. Everybody say David. David, David um, was going to be anointed the next king of Israel. Samuel was instructed by God to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint a king. He didn't know who that king was at the time, so he knew where to go, the town. He knew the household. He knew the father, but he didn't know the, the person. He goes there and he tells Jesse, I'm to anoint one of your sons to be king of Israel. And Jesse gathers up the boys and he has them stand before Samuel. And the first one is Eliab. Eliab's the oldest. And he comes and Samuel had the wrong perspective. Now, now let me tell you why. Because he wanted to lift the horn of oil and anoint 
Eliab king, and God said, that's not my guy. So the next one passed by, the next, the next, the next, all seven. And he says, Jesse, do you have any more sons? What's the deal? God hasn't chosen any of these. He says, well, I have one more. He's the youngest. He's out in the field. I didn't even call him in. I didn't think he was king material. So he says, I will not sit down till you call him. So David comes in, and God says, that's my guy. Do you remember what God said? He said, I do not look at a man like a man looks at a man. I look at his heart and not his outward appearance. God goes from the inside out. Sometimes we go from the outside in. And God had a different perspective about David than his own family had about him. Now, the reason I say that, remember later, when he's going to help his brothers, taking them food, uh, news from home, getting news to take back to dad, and he takes some cheese, he takes some bread, he takes some things to the battlefield, and it's almost like his brothers resent that he's there. How many of you know brothers can be crossways? Matter of fact, the Bible talks about it. A brother is born for what? Adversity. Uh, Steve and I, we're, we're brothers. Worst fights we ever had was with each other. Matter of fact, my sister-in-law is sitting over here, and she'll know this to be true. Uh, we had a lot of fights growing up. The worst fights I ever had was with my brother. From about the eighth grade, he was always bigger than me. I was younger, but he's always bigger than me, stronger, faster. I mean, this guy is uh, uh, all-state in football, high school All-American, went to Tulsa to play football, Division One football, black belt in karate. I could do pretty good standing away from him. <laughs> Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. But if he ever got a hold of me, honey, it was all over. It's like you had a hold of a bear or a bear had a hold of you. I mean, goodness gracious. And I remember the last fight we ever had. I come home from college, and uh, we, uh, we had a two-story house, and we go upstairs, and bedrooms were up there. And that night we got in a fight. It was the last fight we ever had. You know what we fought over? Something really deep. Who's going to turn the light out? <laughs> this is true. So we had this huge fight over who's going to turn the light out. Can any brothers here identify with me here? Yeah. If you've got brothers, you can get wrangled over some of the dumbest stuff. So we have this fight over who's going to turn the light out. And, and so we're, we're getting ready to duke it out. And so the swinging starts and, and we're rumbling up there in the upstairs bedroom. And there's a window there and I'm standing by the window and he comes at me with his haymaker and I barely ducked under and he swung uh, over me and when he was coming around I come up and I hit him three times right in the face and I busted his nose and his lips he fell over the bed and I ran down the steps and got in my car and I drove off <laughs> it's true because I thought if he's getting up I'm in trouble if you don't get him the first time it's over so I got in the car and I drove around for about 30 minutes or an hour and I come back and all the lights in the house are on and dad's up there sitting on the side of the bed with Steve Blood's coming out of his face, and his nose is swollen up, his lips are swollen up. And I thought, now Dad's fixing to get a hold of me. And, and you know, I'm, you know, 19, 20 years old. And, and so I said, Dad's going to get a hold of me. And, and, and Dad looked at me, and he said, okay, boys. He said, this is it. You've fought, fought ever since you were kids. He said, you're not going to fight anymore because you're going to hurt each other. So he's going, oh, oh, yeah. And not that he hadn't hurt me, let me tell you. I think he's hurt me more than I've hurt him. But he said, you're not going to fight anymore. You can be in a family and get crossways. And here David is. His dad doesn't even call him in 
to the house when the prophet's there. His brothers take offense that he even shows up on the battlefield. Because David's just asking, when Goliath shows up 40 days and he presents himself, send me a man, send me a man, then David begins to ask questions. He said, what shall be done for the man who goes out and defeats the giant? Well, he, um, he'll get to marry the king's daughter. He'll be royalty. I mean, he'll go right into the palace with the king and the family. He won't have to pay taxes for the rest of his life. I don't even know that would get your attention. And so he begins to tell all the benefits of what's going to happen. And just the fact that David inquired, his brother Eliab and the rest of the brothers got upset with him. You know what they said? We know the naughtiness of your heart. We know what's in your heart. How many of you know they did not know what was in his heart? They thought they knew what was in his heart, but they did not know what was in his heart. Can I tell you, David was sovereignly sent to the battlefield by Almighty God. This was a God thing, and they thought it was a pride thing. They thought David was prideful, arrogant. And then they begin to insult him. You need to go home with those sheep. We're the warriors, you're the sheep boy. And then they insult him. They said, the few sheep you have. Not only are you a little shepherd, you have a little flock. And they're insulting him, and they're insulting him. They have a wrong perception of him. Sometimes there is some dysfunction that shows up in families that shouldn't be there because we have a wrong perception and perspective about one another, and it can come right into the family. Why did Samuel want to anoint Eliab? Because he was tall, he was muscular, he was good-looking, he was handsome, and it looked like he was king material. But Samuel had a wrong perception of Eliab. And they all had a wrong perception of David until the anointing of God fell on David and now David is God's man. And if we don't watch it, we too can have a wrong perspective. And we have to be careful of that. We'll accuse people of doing things for the wrong reason and we don't even know the real reason. We'll assume someone is this way and we don't even know what way that they are because we've never walked in their shoes. We don't know the history. So therefore we have to be careful we don't make those wrong assumptions, those wrong perspectives, those wrong looks, feelings in areas that we can't verify. Now, that can come in right into your own home, not just with a brother or sister or someone in the church. That, that can come in right there with your family. And I'm talking about a husband and wife. You can have a wrong perception about your husband. You can have a wrong perception about your wife. And let me explain it. You can have the perception, if I was married to someone else, it'd be better. You know why it wouldn't be better? You'd be there. That's why it wouldn't be better. Well, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. That's because somebody's been watering more than you have. If you don't water, you don't get the green. Maybe you need to water more on your side of the fence. Maybe you need to invest more. Maybe you need to say more, love more, be more, be more affectionate. You see, because we can have perspectives. Well, if I was with someone else, it would be better. I feel undervalued. I feel overlooked, overwhelmed, over, uh, you know, whatever. I'm neglected. And sometimes it's just a perspective issue. Sometimes it's a real issue. Sometimes it's a perspective issue. So we have to be careful that we don't bring assumptions to the table about the people in our church, in our life, in our family, in our marriage that is the wrong perception. And if we do have that perception, then maybe we need to put on the corrective lens to see it the right way and begin to get refocused into what it should be. Can I hear an amen? amen. Now, 
I want to ask two questions here before we, we leave. The first one is this. What's your perspective of God? Can I tell you a lot of people have a wrong perspective of God? They think God's out to get them. They think God is not the one who loves them. They think God is some ogre in the sky. You mess up and he's got a Louisville slugger and he's going to knock you out of the kingdom if you ever mess up. Well, can I tell you we're all going to mess up? Matter of fact, you, you come to him messed up. Because if you have the idea I'm going to get cleaned up and come to God, you got the wrong perspective. Because you can't clean up without God. You can't do it on your own. Hey, ding, you'd already done it if you could. And neither can I. I share this often and I want to share it for someone's sake today. When I was a teenager going to church, how many of you know, back in the old days, and I'm not that old, but back in the old days, I want to tell you the preachers preached it straight and hard. Hell was hot. <laughs> they preached a hot hell. Now here's the deal. Sometimes as a teenager, I was sitting there listening to the preacher and it seemed like they had it all together. They didn't make mistakes. They didn't have the feelings I had. They, they weren't tempted like I was. Now, they were, but how many of you know I had the wrong perspective? I mean, they, they, they shot it straight. Hell was hot. I mean, you, you got to turn or burn. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, boy, I don't know if I can be that good. I don't know if I'm that righteous. And when you're in high school and in college, and, you know, you got all these things going on, then you think, I don't know if I can ever live that life. So let me tell you what I did, and it was wrong. I thought, well, if I'm going to go to hell anyway, I might as well go out here and have one hell of a good time. And I did for several years, and that was wrong. Let me tell you why. I had the wrong perspective. I'm not going to cast guilt on them, but I was there perceiving it wrong, like they had it together. They, they never had issues. They, they never had faults. They had never had failures. They never had bad thoughts, and I did. Listen, everybody has issues. Are you listening to me? Everybody has issues. That's why we need the grace of God. That's, we need, that's why we need the mercy of God. That doesn't give you license to sin, but it gives you perspective that God is for you and he's not against you. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to be an overcomer. He wants you to be victorious. But sometimes we have this perspective of God that God is the cosmic killjoy and he does not want me to be happy. And matter of fact, if I serve him, I'll never be happy again. Matter of fact, if I serve him, he's probably going to send me to some place in Africa and that's where I'm going to be. <laughs> Wrong perspective of God. If he sends you to Africa, it's because you want to go and you'll be happy there. But if we don't watch it, we will have a wrong perspective of God. And we have a world today that has the wrong perspective of God. Now here's the flip side of this. What's God's perspective about you? You can have a perspective about God, but can I tell you God has a perspective about you? Can I tell you what God's perspective about you is? Because we know what his perspective about us is. The word tells us. Can I give you some perspectives about God? on how he sees you. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. God says, let me reveal this. This is what I'm thinking about you. I have good thoughts about you. I have great thoughts about you. I want to make you a success, give an expected ending, give you a great future. That's the thoughts I think about you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what everlasting life. The next verse says, verse 17, which you don't hardly ever hear, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. God is not out to condemn you. He's not looking to condemn you. He's looking to save you. Because why? He loves you so much. 
And he loves me so much. Do you realize that any way that you can get in the family, God wants you in? How, how do you get in the family? You're birthed into the family. The Lord wants you to be born again. He wants you to be birthed into his family. How do you get in the family? You can get adopted. And hereby he has given us the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He'll adopt you in. Or you can marry into a family, right? So therefore, we are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom, and he wants to marry us. Whether we're birthed in, adopted in, marry in, God said, I want you in my family. Isn't that good news? God wants you in his family. Why? Those are the perspectives that God has about you. He's not out to send you to hell. Matter of fact, he won't send you to hell. You'll go there by yourself. You'll have to walk over him to get there. There's a loving Savior saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. The Holy Spirit saying, don't go, don't go. That's the right perspective. Well, God's going to send me to hell. No, he won't. You'll go there because you choose to go there. Do you realize hell was never even created for you? The Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. But he's doing a good job convincing other people to go there with him. God's perspective about you is that you are the apple of his eye. Do you remember Joshua taking over for Moses? And Joshua is getting ready to follow Moses, which would be a huge, huge challenge. And God comes to Moses, sends him on his journey for 40-something years. Moses does miracles, signs, wonders. Moses dies. Now Joshua's up to take the leadership and God comes to Joshua he says listen Joshua you better do as good or better than Moses or I'm kicking you out that's not what he said you know what he said he said Joshua you know my servant Moses is dead and I want to tell you something son as I was with Moses I'm going to be with you you be strong you be courageous you keep my precepts, you keep my word, and I will give you good success, and I'll prosper you. He didn't run in there like the Calvary and say, okay, Josh, you messed up, you're out, buddy. You know what he's doing? He's encouraging him all the way. You become what I've sent you to become. I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Be courageous. You can do this. I'm going to give you that success. I'm going to give you that prosperity. So Joshua, you got this. I'm right there with you. That's the right perspective of God. And today, if you're going through something, you know what God's saying to you? I'm right there with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You may have messed up. You may have trouble. You may feel like you're at the point of no return. But I'm going to tell you, you are the apple of my eye. And I have you engraved on the palm of my hand. Do you know the one who can call every star in the universe by name knows your name? If, if he can call every star in the universe by name, he knows your name. Matter of fact, can I go a little deeper here? He knows every hair on your head. And for some of you, it don't take long to count it. <laughs> and you know what I found out? Every morning when I look in the bottom of the shower, God's having to do a recount. <laughs> but this is what I know. According to the Word of God, God knows you more and more detailed and greater than anybody else. Why? 
you're his kid. Yesterday for a while, Aaron and Natalie and Riley came to our house. She's only been there a couple of times. And can I tell you, when that little girl comes to my house, I'm just crazy. It just makes you nutty. I mean, I'm blowing between her toes and, and, and I'm, you know, holding her up and making goofy faces. Well, so Pastor, you make goofy faces all the time, but they're even goofier. Well, what would throw you into that mode? Because you have love. What is your perception of God? Is he out here in the distance and he's, he's not close? Is he way out there and he doesn't care about you? Is he out there and he's the divine ogre that is against you and doesn't want you to succeed? No. That's the wrong perception of God. God is there trying to allow you to become everything he created you to become. With the mindset of there's eternity out there so that you might live with him, not just today, not tomorrow, not 50 years, 60 years, 80 years, but for eternity. That's the perception of God. God has a long-term perception. Sometimes we have a very narrow perception. God has a long-term perception. So listen, in this walk that we have, in our family, with one another in the church, with your coworker, don't be guilty of making perceptions that you are making or I'm making that may not be right because we're guilty of that sometimes. That's why we're horrible judges because we can only see skin deep. And God says, I look at the heart. I just don't look at the outward appearance. So today, God's perspective of you is awesome. It's awesome. He sees you through the eyes of grace and mercy and not condemnation. He sees you through the eyes of grace and mercy. Does that give us the license to go out and live any way we want to in sin? God forbid, Paul said. But it gives us the right perception that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. I don't know how many people's told you that. Matter of fact, nobody's ever said that to me except God. He said, I'm going to be with you to the end of this world. And you know what I think? He'll be with me when this world's over. And he'll be with you. Would you close your eyes with me? We are so thankful you joined us today. We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you were encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory and hope changes everything.